11 bodies, 10 years, and countless theories. I'm talking about the Long Island serial killer case. It was just how many bodies were being found in one area. I was shocked. Follow us, Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter, on Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. And to follow our investigation even further, don't miss our all-new special Unraveled, The Long Island Serial Killer. Streaming now, exclusively on Discovery+. Plus. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you're free. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk. Thank you for listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast, watching us on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Twitter's Live Periscope uh, that you can watch the show uh, through and also LinkedIn Live. Uh, We have a great guest joining us in the second half of the hour. In the first half, I'm going to be doing something in just a moment, but I do want to say a couple of things here today. (laughs) You know, a lot of people say that uh, Joe Biden hasn't united us. Joe Biden hasn't united Democrats and Republicans. Joe Biden hasn't united the American people. American people can't be united by Joe Biden or anybody. We have to unite ourselves. We have to make that decision. Let me give you an example, okay? I was just on TV right before this on America Reports on Fox News Channel, where I am a Fox News contributor. Now, for those of you that watch Fox and say you have a liberal bias, you're damn right I have a liberal bias. I'm a liberal Democrat, political analyst, a Democratic strategist, and a talk show host who is paid to present the liberal point of view. So when I do that, I'm doing my job because the panel has a conservative doing their bias to the right and me, the liberal, doing my bias, if you will, uh, to the left. One, two. I'm not a journalist. I was back in the day. I opine for a living. Journalists uh, report or should be reporting the facts. People like me who analyze or strategize, we opine about the facts that are given. Three, I'm not on TV to win a beauty contest. I get so tired of all of your opinion of my hair or what, you know, my weight is and stuff like that. Please just stop, especially women, because, you know, we as women have been, um, you know, objectified, you know, by, you know, our breast instead of our brains since Adam and Eve. And I don't know about you, but in 2021, I am damn sick of it. Seriously, we are more than that. We should be more than that, ladies. And you ladies should never be calling out another woman for her physical appearance. Just stop. Additionally, I, have a, I am of Jewish ancestry on my father's side. I am very tired to the, uh, about the vaccines or COVID being compared to the Holocaust. The Holocaust had over 11 million die. Six million of them were Jews. And at the time, there were 14 million Jews on the planet. So Hitler almost wiped out almost half of the Jewish people of this world. We are not wearing a yellow star, which will lead us to be put in ghettos, then be rounded up and put on trains, sent to a camp 
where we are gassed when we think we're supposed to be given a shower and then burnt in an oven and sometimes alive. No, asking you to have a vaccine passport, to get a vaccine, to wear a mask is nothing like the Holocaust. Please just stop. And then lastly, I was on TV, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, talking about these vaccine passports. And I had mentioned that in 2007, I adopted my son from Pakistan. Now, most of you listen to me on radio, have read what I write. I've written about my adoption journey or watch me on TV. Know this. Somebody just wrote this and it really made me mad. I'd, I'd like to slap her in the face, but I'm a pacifist. And she basically said I was playing the victim again. Let me make it clear. Being married to a doctor, that doesn't make me a victim. Makes me very blessed because I love my husband no matter what he does. He's gorgeous. He makes a great living. He's a wonderful guy. He's a great father. And I am very blessed to live an incredibly wonderful life every day that I wake up and I'm six feet above ground instead of below. I am grateful. Okay. Two, adopting my son doesn't make me a victim. Are you out of your mind? It made me a mother. And that makes me truly even more blessed. My son fills my heart like no other. And I have my daughter as well, who fills the other part of my heart. That, that's my heart's like in, you know, five, you know, positions, right? My husband, my son, my daughter, my friends, and the rest of the family. And, and you know, so I just want to be clear. I'm not a victim. I'm very blessed. As a matter of fact, I'm, you're looking at white privilege, folks. I'm very blessed. So I just wanted to put all of that out there because I get tired of tweeting it and I get tired of blocking you. Oh, by the way, and if you insult me, I will block you. And if you follow me and insult me, why are you following me? And if you want to say things like, oh, Leslie Marshall's playing the victim again, whatever, talk amongst yourselves. Don't involve me. I don't have time for you because you and your negativity are polluting my very wonderful right now life. That's all. Or that's the memo is my buddy Bill. <laughs> Let's get to what is rich. I want you to listen uh, during, as you know, it's uh, Derek uh, Chauvin's trial this week. I want you to listen to the 911 call that was played uh, in the court, uh, in the trial. This is the 911 call of a witness who did call 911. Yes, called police on the police, uh, called 911 on the officers at the scene because he believed he, quote, witnessed a murder. Take a listen. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Officer 987 killed a uh, citizen in front of a Chicago uh, store. He just pretty much just killed this guy that wasn't resisting arrest. He had his knee on the dude's neck the whole time, Officer 987. The man went, uh, went, stopped breathing. He wasn't resisting arrest or nothing. He was already in handcuffs. They pretty much just killed the dude. I don't even know if he's dead for sure, but he was not responsible when the ambulance came and got him. And the officer that was just out here left, the one that actually just murdered the kid in front of everybody on 36, 38th in uh, Chicago. Okay. Would you like to speak with the, the sergeant? Yeah, like that was bogus what they just did to this man. He was unresponsive. He wasn't resisting arrest or any of it. Okay, let me get you over to the desk. You can request to speak with the sergeant, okay? Yeah, and I'm sitting here talking to, uh, with another off-duty uh, firefighter that just sat here and watched you in front of us as well. Okay. And she told him to check the, the man pulse, but they wouldn't even check the, uh, the pulse. Okay, one second. Powerful. 
Very, very powerful. And we'll continue to bring uh, you updates uh, here on the program as they are presented to us. Let's have another. 67% of students who plotted school shootings had potential access to one or more firearms. That's according to a report from the Secret Service that was published today. So why does this matter? Well, the United States suffers one of the highest rates of gun violence in the world, 57 times as many school shootings as the other six G7 countries combined. What? That's according to reports by CNN. Now, the issue is a topic of national debate once again after a string of recent shootings in one week in Atlanta and then Boulder. Uh, the findings uh, in this study, conducted by the Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center, analyzed 100 students who plotted six 67 attacks in K-12 schools nationwide from 2006 to 2018. Students who plotted attacks shared many similarities with students who perpetrated attacks. That includes histories of school discipline, bullying, mental health issues, and or substance abuse. Now, they were often impacted by adverse childhood experience, like abuse. They were most often motivated to plan an attack due to an interpersonal conflict uh, with a classmate or classmates. The study called on schools and communities to facilitate tangible steps for identifying and reporting concerning behaviors, especially among students themselves, who the report said are best positioned to identify warning signs from their classmates. Nearly one-third of plotters conducted research into prior mass attacks, with many displaying interest in the 1999 Columbine shootings, as well as Nazism and white supremacy. Many also planned attacks associated with certain dates, particularly in the month of April. That is the anniversary of the Columbine attack. About 94% of the plotters talked about their attacks. 75% were detected by authorities as a result of it. We need to listen, right? We need to listen. And we need to watch, right? The bottom line, the purpose of the study is the most comprehensive analysis of school shootings since Columbine, by the way, per Associated Press. It is not to identify students for arrest, but to recognize early warning signs so that no one falls through the cracks. In other words, prevent the shooting before it happens and perhaps help the shooter because some of them uh, might have uh, some issues mentally. Let's rip another. President Biden announced a slate of new actions today aimed at addressing the nation's rise in anti-Asian violence. The move comes nearly two weeks after deadly shootings that left eight dead, including six Asian women, and a year and after a year of Asian American Pacific Islander, the AAPI communities calls for help from the government. By the way, a hundred and fifty percent increase in attacks against Asians since uh, President Trump, former President Trump, started calling it Kung Flu and the China virus. The new actions include a Department of Justice cross-agency initiative focused on responding to hate crimes. The DOJ will initiate community outreach to address gaps in hate crimes reporting, while the FBI will publish a new interactive hate crime page dedicated to anti-Asian hate crimes. And the DOJ updated its hate crimes website, accessible now in Chinese, Korean, Tagalog, and Vietnamese. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines, part one. We'll come back with ripped from the headlines, part two, right after this. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. Happy Tuesday to you. 
Uh, a Nobel Prize winning, eco- oh, let's finish uh, in our second half of Ripped from the headlines. A Nobel Prize winning economist says he not only endorses President Biden's expected $4 trillion infrastructure spending plan, but expects that it could break the U.S. out of the low growth, low inflation environment that has existed for the past 20 years. The combination of President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief plan and the expected Build Back Better program mean that the United States may be in a very good position to get back into a more normal economy. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Columbia University professor Joseph Stieglitz, who told Axios, this in an exclusive interview. He said, quote, we've been for the last two decades in an abnormal environment. We've been in a bad equilibrium trap. He went on to say, quote, the inequality uh, means people don't have demand. A lack of demand means we don't invest. So we've been in a very bad, vicious circle. And I'm optimistic that this may break us out into a new period of strong growth, which is more egalitarian. Here is the big picture. U.S. growth has been stuck at around 2% since 2000, averaging 2.1% a year. Now, you compare that to the country's long-run average of closer to 4%. Economists have argued about whether the growth decline is a result of increasing debt, rising economic inequality, declining investment, or other reversible trends, or is simply the consequence of an aging population and natural factors. So where does it stand? Well, if Biden's infrastructure proposal becomes law, well, we're, who, by the way, Stieglitz, he was awarded the 2001 Nobel Prize in Economics. He knows a bit more about this than me. He said, quote, we're going to heat up the economy. He said, we're going to be investing, spending money on education, childcare, a whole variety of expenditures across the spectrum, and not just giving money to the very rich, but giving money to people who actually spend it. That will create more demand, and that should give people more confidence to invest. Let's rip another. The next month is the most important period for the United States climate action in more than a decade, and possibly ever longtime advocates and observers tell Axios. With scientists issuing more urgent warnings that time is running out to curtail the consequences of global warming, the policy choices proposed through the end of next month, April, could reverberate for decades to come. According to Sam Ricketts, co-founder and senior policy advisor for Evergreen Action, quote, this is the moment those of us who work in this space have been waiting for for at least a decade. Looking at the big picture, the Biden administration is moving quickly on three fronts to regain international credibility on this issue after the Trump White House pulled the country out of the Paris Climate Agreement. First, the White House is proposing a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package this week that is aimed at wrapping ambitious climate policy goals into a jobs bill. Second, the administration is trying to transform the country's energy mix through regulations and executive orders most recently, yesterday, with the announcement that it would seek to deploy 30 gigawatts worth of offshore electricity generation by 2013, that is higher than even the most aggressive projection from energy analysts. And third, there's the looming deadline for the State Department to formally unveil the country's new emission targets under the Paris Agreement, known as a Nationally Determined Contribution, or NDC. The NDC would signal to other countries how ambitious and serious the United States is about tackling climate change. Here's the intrigue. The details of the draft ND in the NDC are closely held among the teams of Special Climate Envoy John Kerry and White House Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. But environmental groups and some Democratic lawmakers are pushing them to be as bold as possible, possibly going as far as a 50 percent emissions cut compared to the 2005 levels by 2030 that is proposed now. The target that is chosen will send a message to the rest of the world, possibly spur other nations to be more ambitious in their emission cuts as well. The White House is hosting a virtual climate summit 
April 22nd through the 23rd. And they're doing this to encourage other countries to make far-reaching emissions reduction plans. Um, According to David Waskow of the World Resource Institute, quote, this is going to be seen by the rest of the world as a key test of credibility for this administration. Quote, there's no doubt that a strong target will both spur the economy in the United States in the right direction and bring some of the credibility in the United States that they want to have internationally. So here's what to watch. The NDC is going to serve as the strongest signal to date that the U.S. is back to take a leadership role in international climate talks and a lackluster target, particularly for 2030. It would enable other countries, including China, to emit more planet warming greenhouse gases than might have otherwise. So between the lines, according to the UN, the world is on track for at least three degrees Celsius, that's 5.4% Fahrenheit, uh, of warming, okay? Three degrees Celsius, 5.4 Fahrenheit, of warming by 2100 if countries stick to their current Paris emissions uh, targets. Now, scientists warn that this could cause catastrophic consequences, such as the accelerated melting of polar ice sheets. We've already seen uh, a lot of polar bears with uh, no ice uh, to live on and live off of. Uh, Here's what they're saying. Regan said he's hoping to see a clean electricity standard, and that could drastically scale up the use of solar wind and other energy sources implemented as part of the infrastructure bills. And uh, And said, quote, President Biden is considering all options to get the United States on the path to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That's according to a spokesman at the State Department. And they mentioned India as a priority country for climate diplomacy, along with China. And China, as you know, is the world's top emitter. The other side, Republican lawmakers have already signaled their opposition, big surprise to an infrastructure package that contains far-reaching climate policy provisions. Uh, According to Rep. uh, Sam Graves, the top Republican on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, in a statement, he said, quote, we simply cannot afford another Green New Deal disguised as an infrastructure bill. Yes, but while Biden is about to show his hand, a lot needs to go right for all this to succeed. The jobs bill alone could take months to pass. The razor thin, thin, excuse me, Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, well, it means the administration is going to have to hold together progressives and moderates. And that's not going to be easy, particularly on how to pay trillions in new infrastructure spending. But here's the bottom line. Rarely, if ever, has a moment like this come along with the potential to advance climate goals domestically and internationally at the same time. The administration is sprinting to cobble together a legislative program, regulatory moves, and diplomatic steps simultaneously. And that's going to be a delicate balancing act. My two cents, do it in pieces. It's too too big to, 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 to I know some people are going to disagree with me on this. I'm sorry. Do it in pieces. Do it in pieces. The price tag isn't as big if you do it that way. And then people don't say, hey, this is an infrastructure. It's a, a you know, a, a, a Green New Deal. And, you know, Green New Deal, socialism, communism, open borders. Those are all big words for politicians on the right. And we have a midterm election coming up in less than two years. Let's rip another. Today, President Biden announced plans to nominate 11 judges to the federal courts, and that includes D.C. District Court Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to replace former D.C. Circuit Court Judge Merrick Garland. He's now the attorney general. And uh, let's look at this. The nominees include three black women and, if confirmed, confirmed, could result in the first Muslim federal judge in the United States and in the history of this country, the first AAPI woman to serve on the D.C. District Court, and the first woman of color as a federal judge in Maryland, according to the White House. The selections reflect the president's deeply held conviction that the federal bench should reflect the full diversity of the American people. Um, That was a news release uh, from the White House. This is a president who promised to diversify his cabinet, he has, to, to, to promise to do this. 
and, and you know, you, you, you got to give uh, credit to that. Uh, the nomination of Jackson is going to likely spur discussion about a potential nomination for the Supreme Court because Biden said he will nominate the country's first black female justice and the D.C. Circuit Court to which Jackson is nominated is often viewed as a stepping stone to uh, the highest court. Jackson was once a clerk for Justin Stephen Breyer, the oldest justice on the Supreme Court. Maybe she'll place him. Uh, and let's take a look at a few of the others. Zahid N. Qureshi a magistrate uh, judge nominee for the New Jersey District Court, be the first Muslim. Tiffany Cunningham, a, a patent litigator in Chicago. Uh, she would be the first woman to serve on that court. Florence Y. Pan, a D.C. Superior Court judge, would be the first Asian-American woman. And Candace Jackson Akwami, who would be the uh, only black woman on the court's bench in the Seventh Circuit. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's written from the headlines. Coming up, our guest, more with you right after this. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back, second half of the show, and I'm very glad to have with us for the first time Damon Hewitt. Damon is acting president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He leads one of the country's most important and long-tenured national civil rights organizations in the pursuit of equal justice for all. The Lawyers Committee seeks to promote fair housing and community development, economic justice, voting rights, equal educational opportunity, criminal justice, judicial diversity, and more. Please check out their website. Go to lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, follow them at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. Uh, Damon's handle, at Damon the. Hewitt, and it's kind of pushed together, a Damon T. Hewitt, D-A-M-O-N-T-H-E-W-I-T-T. Additionally, by the way, the Lawyers Committee powers 866-OUR-VOTE. That number is 866-OUR-VOTE. They work 365 days a year to advance and defend your right to vote. So you can call 866-OUR-VOTE with your questions about voting, any issues you have with regard to voting. The website, 866-OUR-VOTE. Dot org. More than a pleasure to have Damon with us today. Hi, Damon. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this important issue. I understand that elections have consequences. And when you look at the state of Georgia and you have a black man who becomes a senator, a Jewish man who becomes a senator, and um, a Democratic guy who becomes a president, and the other two are also Democrats, uh, Republicans uh, worry. Um, there is legislature in the state of Georgia that has been passed, SB 202, uh, that many people, even some on the right, um, feel is not just unconstitutional, but it goes too far, such as not being able to give food and water to people in areas, um, to have uh, drop boxes removed from specifically areas where people of color, even more specifically African-Americans live, and especially when you see those numbers, because African-Americans turned Georgia blue without question when you look at the exit poll and, and the numbers, and especially African-American women. Um, you know, so uh, there are lawsuits coming out right now, right? There's a federal lawsuit that says Georgia's SB 202 is a culmination of concerted efforts to suppress the participation of black voters and other voters of color. Um, there are those on the right who would say everything that comes out, we on the left bring up the race card and we, we cry race. In this instance, there is no question that this is voter suppression. Would you agree? And can you please speak to that? Well, thank you, Leslie. For, of course, this is voter suppression. Not only is it voter suppression, but it's at the intersection of, of race and racial discrimination. And that's why 
at the Lawyers Committee on behalf of Georgia-based organizations, we did file a lawsuit uh, Sunday night uh, alleging not just that this happens to have a negative or disparate impact on black voters, brown voters, uh, but also that it is an intentionally discriminatory policy. Uh, the, the whole shebang, this entire statute, is intentionally discriminatory on all fronts uh, because we know that it's not happenstance that these uh, retrogressive, backwards-going uh, restrictions are designed to uh, stamp out the increased voter participation that we saw nationwide and also in Georgia uh, in, in 2020. Uh, but also we know that black and brown and even Asian voters are a growing part of the electorate. So this isn't just about today. This is about a long game in terms of what this legislation is designed to do to frustrate democracy before it even has a chance to breathe. Well, first of all, the legislation, you know, although uh, you know, we'll talk about the targeting, but just uh, at face value, this law threatens the right of all vo voters in Georgia, that's not right. just it, it, minority communities, not just in communities of color, correct? That, that's right. But when, when you think about what, whether uh, a policy is discriminatory, now, this isn't saying XYZ person is a racist or is not a racist. That's right. not the analysis. We're talking about a legal analysis about whether a policy is discriminatory. And so to do that, courts will look to all of the various indicators and context matters. And when you think about the context, listen, when you think about the growing electorate, when you think about where the long lines happen to be, and also when you think about the legacy and the history, you know, we, we said that this is really straight out of the Jim Crow playbook for voter suppression. The first thing you do is make it as hard as possible to vote and encumber ballot access. The second thing you do is you criminalize normal community behavior like handing someone uh, a, a bottle of water because they're in the long line because you made it hard to vote. But then the third thing that happens, Leslie, is that there are officials who say, oh, no, this is just fine. This is facially neutral. This is to preserve the purity and integrity. This is straight out of the Jim Crow playbook. I mean, you can rewind the clock 50, 60 years, and you see really the similar provisions, but just updated, frankly, for the modern context. Oh, abs absolutely, because... The most new, you know, you pointed out some of them. It is absolutely clear, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It is absolutely clear that in this law, the most negative impacts will be felt by communities right. that are specifically being targeted by this legislation. And the reason is, if you look at the map and you look at where the ballot boxes are being taken from, if you look at the map and you look at, and not just that, I, I saw on TV, most of us saw, especially in Georgia, because that election, you know, was separate. Um, when you saw the long lines, overwhelmingly African-Americans were standing in line. And you see that throughout many states in, in this country because there may be less voting locations where they live. And so there are more people going to that one location and they're, and they're standing in hours. And I, I give them kudos. You know, I, I, you know I'm impatient. I complain right. if I'm in line 30 minutes. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's just an act of humanity to hand well, somebody a bottle of water. The bottle doesn't say Biden or bust on it. It, it sure doesn't, right? It, it, you know, voting is the most nonpartisan, pure de uh, democratic activity, lowercase d, that you could ever have, but it's been politicized. And so who's being caught in the middle, frankly, are voters of color. Uh, and also, look, this, this does impact rural voters as well, especially who will have to drive longer yes. distances. But, but I think the intent here is clearly to choke out the, uh, the, the lifeblood of democratic participation, civic participation in these more densely populated areas that tend to be blacker and browner. And also ID, right? A lot of people right. say, ah, 
you know, elderly people don't all, I mean, first of all, so many people don't have licenses. So let's just elderly people, some handicapped people, homeless people, and of course, poorer people. That's right. right. Poor, you know, and not that all poor people take, you know, in a city like New York, for example, but, you know, in, in areas of Georgia, the, the people who don't have the car and that are taking uh, public transportation, that are taking buses, um, you know, to, to get to their place of employment, um, over, overwhelmingly, you know, are not rich white folk. And this law specifically, without question, I agree, uh, targets. Uh, also to, to be brought up in this, um, the Republican-led Georgia state legislature not only passed the anti-democratic SB 202 in order to suppress, in order to obstruct voter turnout statewide, but they originally, Republican Georgia state legislator, passed the original laws. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's it it is a it's a there's a compounded effect here, and I think that's all part of the context that that really does matter. Um, you, you don't you don't have to look very far to see. Uh, what was happening here, in fact, is pretty blatant and patent. I think that the unique overreach, or somewhat unique overreach, of the the, the criminalization, right, of voter support activity, not being able to hand, hand someone a bottle of water, I think that's kind of the icing on the cake made of you-know-what. Uh, quite frankly, you know, this is, I think that's one of the pieces that's going to put it over the top, we hope, in the eyes of, of a federal court in the lawsuit that we filed, and also we think in the court of public opinion. I mean, you have none other than Lindsey Graham, senator out of uh, South Carolina, who said, look, it doesn't make much sense to me that you can't do something like that. And so we want the lawsuit that we filed and other lawsuits that I'm sure will come are designed not just to make a difference in Georgia, but frankly, to put all of these other state legislatures on notice while all of these other bills are being considered and they're racing forward. Uh, that we're here and we're not going anywhere and we won't let this happen quietly just because your party may have a majority or a supermajority uh, in your both uh, houses of your uh, legislature in your state and even in the governor's mansion, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. And I would say, Leslie, I don't want to get ahead of you too far here, but this is exactly why. This is Exhibit A, this legislation, legislation as to why we need federal congressional intervention, why we need uh, the statute known as the, uh, the bill known as the For the People Act, which will help with basic election administration. And it's frankly why we need the bill that's to come, which is the John Lewis Voter uh, Voter Rights Rest uh, Restoration Act, uh, because we need to be able to stop these kinds of laws in their tracks. If you rewind the clock a decade ago, or not even quite a decade ago, we had a provision in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Section 5, they call it the preclearance provision where jurisdictions that have this kind of context in this horrific, uh, racially polarized, racist history of discrimination and voting, that all of these jurisdictions had to get these kinds of changes, the ID, the changing of poll locations, uh, the limitations on ballot access, the criminalization of normal conduct. These things had to be pre-cleared by the U.S. Department of Justice or approved by a federal court. The U.S. Supreme Court gutted that provision of the Voting Rights Act, and without it, that's what paved the way for all of the nonsense we're seeing, mm. not just in Georgia, but the playbook being followed nationwide. Uh, this is, again, exhibit A as to why we need to restore these rights and, frankly, make them stronger than they ever were in the first instance. I'm glad that you mentioned that. We're going to take a break, but I'm glad that you mentioned that because a lot of people think this is unconstitutional. It, it, it's not the federal government telling you how to run your elections. It's just having somebody at the top keeping you in check to prevent exactly what we are talking about with SB202. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guests. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. 
If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. And we are back with Damon Hewitt, acting president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. The website, as I said, is lawyerscommittee.org on Twitter at lawyers.com, C-O-M-M, and Damon's handle is at Damon T. Hewitt, D-A-M-O-N-T-H-E-W-I-T-T. And once again, the Lawyers Committee powers 866-hour vote. Call them 365 days a year to ask questions and understand your rights as a voter. That's 866-HOUR-VOTE, their website, 866-HOUR-VOTE.org. Uh, Damon, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We're talking about Georgia's SB202 uh, legislation uh, that passed, and even some uh, conservatives are uh, uh, shaking their heads as to what this means. Uh, Damon, you must have uh, read my mind in the last segment, because one of the questions I was going to ask you is the uh, the precedent this could set, this lawsuit, uh, you know, with, with Georgia. And I think it will have a domino effect uh, legally because there are other states that are trying to copy, especially red states that Joe Biden flipped, like Arizona is one example, that, that want to copy this. Uh, and I want to be clear, this is not just the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under uh, under law. Listen to the backing and listen to the diversity of the backing. Their co-counsel is Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. And this uh, federal lawsuit that was fired on behalf of the Georgia State Conference of the NAACP, Common Cause, the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Inc., the Galileo Latino, the Galileo Latino Community Development Fund Incorporated, the League of Women Voters of Georgia, and the Lower Muscogee Creek Tribe. Native Americans, Hispanics, women, African Americans, uh, and whites um, all coming together to say uh, this is wrong. And what is happening legally is the group is suing to block voters in restrictions that are included in this legislation, SB202, uh, that was signed into law just days ago by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Specifically, um, and David, I want to ask you about this. Um, your lawsuit names as defendants Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Rebecca Sullivan, David Worley, Matthew Mashburn, uh, on lay in their official capacities uh, as members of the Georgia State Election uh, Board. Why was that important to include? Well, because these are the officials, Leslie, that are uh, tasked with implementing uh, this legislation. So if the court is to enjoin or stop something from happening or require something positive to happen, uh, it has to be vis-a-vis -vis those officials. Specifically, it wouldn't be the legislature itself, although we know that the legislature and the governor's mansion office, rather, are the epicenter of the problem here. And, and so people may not know, a lot of people know about the water and the food. People know about removing ballot boxes. People know about ID. Those are the three that get the most attention. But doesn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't SB202 remove the voting power of the Secretary of State on the State Elections Board and allows that State Elections Board to take over county election boards so that it would give State Election Board unprecedented authority to target jurisdictions with a large population of voters of color, especially the African-American community. That, that's right, it's such an oddity, Leslie, and it is, this is high level politics, right? This is, uh, this is you know, literally a, a takeover, a threatened takeover, uh, you know, county by county of the, of the apparatus to make sure it works in the interests of one party and one party alone. Uh, and not one party versus another party, but one party versus the people. Uh, quite honestly. And, you know, what we've been hearing uh, out of the this particular defendant, the Secretary of State, 
and, and his assigns is that they're not particularly worried. They're not concerned. And I think it's really a warning to us that all of the energy and consternation we heard during the 2020 election season, uh, people who thought that the, the former president had went overboard and certainly obviously did, that they need to keep that same energy when it comes to protecting voters this go around. It's not just about one president who uh, you know went way too far. This is about a, a process that is being hijacked by partisan interests. And whether people of, of your party or not, it, it, it doesn't matter. We can't be complicit in this kind of a takeover. And so it's, a, it's appropriate and ironic uh, that you'd have the Secretary of State named as a defendant. Absolutely. Uh, you had said, Damon, quote, Georgia state lawmakers are making it more difficult to vote, criminalizing ordinary voter assistance and lying to their own constituents to suggest it is for their own good. You say and go on to say by limiting access to absentee ballots and early voting, they are targeting communities of color who are a growing part of the state's electorate. These actions show that discriminatory voter suppression is alive and well and it cannot stand. I'm going to go out on a limb. Is this white man fear? because whites will not be the majority in 2054. And what we're seeing in Georgia is going to happen more. Lindsey Graham, you had mentioned, Lindsey Graham alluded to that. And he said, you know, he, he said, if we continue to go down this road, we, meaning Republicans, will never be in control again. Well, I think that's what it, it's about power, right? It, and it's about who has, you know, not just who has votes, but who has a voice, who has vitality, uh, you know, who, who, has, who has the right to, to have any kind of uh, power over your own lives and your own government, your own communities. And so I, I think this is really, we keep thinking it's the last gasp, right, Leslie? But there's a lot of gasps here uh, that we see through this legislation and through the power grabs and the efforts to overturn, frankly, uh, the valid results uh, of eligible votes from the 2020 election. Uh, this is about power. And I, I, won't, I won't assign the power to a specific uh, race or, or, or gender, uh, the power grab. But what I will say is that because, look, this could shape shift over time. Right. Uh, but I think there is a very uh, sorry legacy of, uh, I think, at the epicenter anti-black racism and any other community of color who gets in the way of this power. Right. And I think that that's what I'm, I'm focused on is is the anti-blackness, the anti-community of colorness, uh, the anti-voter <laughs> approach uh, that, that we're seeing here, all in the interest of maintaining some modicum of last gasps of power. Helen Butler, who's executive director of the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, said, quote, it is unfortunate that Georgians were lied to because some did not like the results of the 2020 elections. However, passing legislation that gives the majority party too much control over our elections while also creating barriers to voters in a rushed and non-transparent process is not the solution to those lies. Our focus is protecting Georgians' right to vote, and that is why we have taken this necessary step. Will there be other lawsuits, like by the ACLU, et cetera, and does that help uh, your suit, uh, having others file as well? Well, look, we, we, we're not privy to other litigation strategies, but the degree of anger, the degree of agita, and the degree of appropriate and compassionate concern, I think every community that is impacted should be speaking up. Uh, you know, every community throughout the state, every community throughout the country to stop some of these laws in their tracks. So it's certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a crowded field, so to speak, in terms of there being multiple lawsuits. But that doesn't mean that the voices are not righteous. I will tell you one differentiator for the lawsuit we have filed is that we are claiming that there's discriminatory intent, not mm -hmm. just uh, discriminatory yes. impact here. And so that sets that suit apart. Others may claim the same 
and follow-on litigation. But I, I would say, I, I can't tell you what the other organizations will do for sure. That's their decision. But we do hope that they support the litigation that exists. So just because you haven't filed a lawsuit doesn't mean your communities or your organization's voice should not be heard. In fact, we want to lift up all voices uh, and, and make it loud enough so that somebody, the courts or other policymakers, will actually listen. Is intent more difficult to prove from your legal expertise? Well, of course, intent is always more difficult to prove. I mean, I, I think that we have been in, in this society overall socialized to presume that discrimin racial discrimination is something of the past. Uh, I think the last year in particular, and certainly the last, the protracted movement moment of the last several years, uh, consistent with the movement for Black Lives, fights on other issues like immigration, Me Too even, have caused an awakening. It's shifted public discourse, and I hope it's also shifted public consciousness. Uh, but certainly the, the, the doctrinal law, it's more difficult to prove. But I will say again, one advantage of an intent claim is that it's not just about the numbers of, well, uh, does it happen to have a disproportionate numerical impact on one community than the other? It allows us, Leslie, to bring in the important context, because I think this is key. I think so many people look for the smoking gun. Does someone use allegedly racist language? Does somebody you know, harbor racism in their hearts? That's, that's not the analysis. The analysis is when you look at all the factors, is there any way to explain what's happening besides it being discriminatory? Is there well, any way? Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go, you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is, is there, are there other, you know, common sense factors that stand on their own? And frankly, there are not. Uh, these, this law, SB 202, and a lot of the other laws, these are bad solutions in search of non-existent problems. Uh, they are not designed to solve for anything. They're simply designed to choke out democracy. Well, I think intent is, although hard uh, to prove, easier to prove when you show that it, the law is uh, clearly uh, a way to discriminate against minority and poor voters in Georgia. Um, and also when you just look at the black and brown communities, um, uh, you know, make it harder for those communities to vote. And I, I think you have enough evidence to do that right there. Um, we have less than 60 seconds. I want to give you the last word. Well, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Leslie. What we see in Georgia uh, is, is just the tip of what we will likely see around the country. Uh, we welcome, we don't welcome this legislation, but we welcome the fight. And we think that this is creating a moral clarity in this country that will help members of Congress, including the erstwhile majority in Congress, understand why we need federal congressional intervention to protect the voting rights of ordinary citizens, especially those who are facing this kind of discrimination. And that John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Uh, thank you, uh, Damon. You were great, and we will definitely have you back. Awesome job. Awesome job on the show today. Thank you. Thank uh, the you. website for the Lawyers Committee is lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, follow them at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. Damon's handle at Damon T. Hewitt, D-A-M-O-N-T-H-E-W-I-T-T. And remember that 866-hour-vote number. You can call with voting questions and issues 365 days a year. Go to their website if you want more info, 866-HOUR-VOTE.ORG. It's got a lot of information. I've been there. I've learned a thing or two. You can as well. Thank you, Damon. And thank you, Marky Mark Romaldi, our executive producer. Everybody have a great week. Uh, you've been on the road for hours, covered 527 miles, listened to three podcasts, yeah. had two calls with your mom and one with your sister, and you're really hungry. And look at that. There's a McDonald's one mile up ahead meal. There's a meal for every moment at McDonald's. 
Cruise up to McDonald's and get your favorite items on the one, two, three dollar menu, like a McChicken, McDouble, or four piece McNuggets. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Eleven bodies, ten years, and countless theories. I'm talking about the Long Island serial killer case. It was just how many bodies were being found in one area. I was shocked. Follow us, Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter, on Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. And to follow our investigation even further, don't miss our all-new special Unraveled, The Long Island Serial Killer, streaming now, exclusively on Discovery+. Plus.